Welcome to another episode of the Faith Work Rest podcast. Our mission is to help people discern their vocations and reimagine their occupation for the good of their neighbor and the glory of God. We're part of the Surge Network. It's a network of local churches united to put Jesus on display in their community. You can learn more at surgenetwork.com. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is an exciting episode that we've got for you today of the Faith Work Rest podcast. Uh, One of the reasons it's exciting is because we've got a new member of the team to introduce you to. So uh, this is Lauren. Um, Oftentimes we've had Danae Pierre here. She's still on the team. Uh, Jim Mullins is with us today, but we've also got Kimberly Deckel. Uh, And so I wanted, uh, Kimberly, we're so glad to have you here. And and just if you could tell the audience about who you are, maybe a little bit of your background and, and why you're excited to be here. Yeah, hi, thank you. Um, So my name's Kimberly, and I'm excited to be here um, for a lot of reasons, but I think for me, um, just a little bit of background I'll start with first, I guess. So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and lived there most of my, like my childhood, finished graduate school, um, and then was tired of winter, so I moved to Arizona, and I don't miss winter at all. Um, My education is in social work, and so I received my bachelor's and my master's degree in social work and have worked in that field since, oh, I don't know, for a long time, for the last 15 years or so, have worked as a social worker and have really loved it and have been, um, I've learned a ton from it, probably more than, I think, than the people I've worked with. They've offered me so much. A lot of the clients that I've had, I've worked primarily with women and children, so women and substance abuse, and then um, kids who were in residential treatment who came to us from detention and from the state hospital. And so I think that when I think of like that, the profession that I've had and really had the privilege of being a part of for so long, it's kind of, in some ways, kind of like obvious, I guess, how I can really take like the message of God and, and his kingdom and the virtues of Jesus to the work and to the people I'm working with, maybe more so than some other professions. Um, But I love this and I love the idea of really helping others to see um, how maybe their not so obvious job can glorify God. I think partially because I've had a job that in some ways it's kind of like obvious, I guess, when you're helping people and supporting people um, who are really kind of in the margins. But I love being able to help others see how how their profession can do that as well. I'm a mom to a six-year-old girl named Keenan, and she's super fun and energetic and spicy and creative and all that. And then my husband, Steve, um, is also super fun. He's not so spicy, um, but he's kind of a creative musician, that type of a thing. And so, yeah, we call Phoenix home and just really love it here and love um, serving God and his people in this really amazing city. So I'm happy to be here. Excellent. We are very glad that you're here with us and on the team. Thanks. Very much. Well, we've got a really exciting interview today. Uh, Jordan and Bethany Banesh uh, were, were with us recently. Um, they're both uh, in the accounting field and have given some uh, really profound thought to their vocation, their occupation, and have some great things to share with you today. Uh, before we dive into that, uh, as usual, we wanted to just kind of um, chat a little bit about some of what we thought about that interview. Um, and then also, I just wanted to remind everybody that we are part of the Faith Work Rest Initiative that's part of the Surge Network. Um, and we are kicking this thing off with um, interviewing thought leaders and practitioners who have um, 
are, are, are working in this, this space, doing the hard work and thinking through and uh, wrestling with what work looks like in God's kingdom. Um, and, and how to be a part of that, how to participate in that. Um, and in light of that, we are also doing coaching uh, one-on-one with people to um, help people dis- discern what their vocations are. Um, and so we meet with people one-on-one that call us after listening to an episode of the podcast or that meet us after an event that we do to help out with that. So you can always go to faithworkrest.com to get more information about what we're doing. Uh, we'd also love if you know of a story of somebody that you know that is reimagining their occupation um, or has something worth sharing. We'd love to get your insight as audience members of who to interview and, and has good stories to tell. Jim, I know you've got some questions to kind of kick us off today. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to start with our faith, work, and rest show and tell. So the reason we do this is we basically want to uh, promote, to tell the story of, to connect people with anything that would help them grow in their faith, do good work, or abundantly uh, rest before the face of God. So we're looking for anything, links, articles, books, tools. And so we each want to take an opportunity to share our faith, work, and rest uh, show and tell item of the week. So Lauren, should we start with you? Since we always start with me, I think today I'm putting it on you. Let's start with you, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, that's good. I, you know, faith, work and rest show and tell I, um, I have grown in my faith, uh, recently. I think I, I love music. I love, um, singing and, and worshiping God in song and, um, I think one of the things that makes me nervous about this segment is I, I started to wonder if I'm going to be repeating myself. So stop me if you've heard this one. Uh-huh. But um, I I love this Citizens and Saints album. Have I talked about this before? I don't um, think you have specifically that album. Yeah. So I um, uh, my, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, is the lead worshiper at a church here in Phoenix, and I was sharing with him. I've been, you know, have had times of dryness and struggle, just kind of. Um, remembering who God is and, and in my life and things like that. And so just from a, what has helped me in faith, work and rest, uh, he said, you know, this, the citizens and saints album, I think it's called citizens, but all their stuff is so good has really just been helpful for me lately. So I've been listening to it while hiking, while driving. Um, and honestly, just the, the whole, the same album, same songs over and over again. So that's been really helpful for me. Um, so, so that's, uh, I think my item for today on, on the show and tell is the citizens and saints citizens album. Excellent. How about you, Kimberly? So, okay, this is my first one. So, um, as I was kind of thinking about it, um, we, I feel like oftentimes we, like as a family kind of find ourselves in this place where like, man, we're just going so fast, hundred miles an hour. Um, and, and we're kind of in that space right now, although I think we're stepping into a season of, of some rest. We've also just had a lot of, of change over the last kind of handful of months. And so I found myself just kind of getting out of a routine of finding time, um, just kind of not just for rest, but for definitely just like time with the Lord and time um, that just felt, I don't know, just kind of relaxing and, and free where there wasn't like an agenda and, and just kind of things related to work or whatever on my mind. And so um, kind of in addition to that, so I'm a runner and, and have been like through high school and college and after college and not as much since I had my daughter, but 
a little bit. And so I've been trying to get back into that a little bit more. And so this really cool piece of my day that's kind of started up over the last probably four weeks or so is that in the mornings right now, super early because, you know, we're in the hot desert. Keenan and I get up and she rides her bike and I go run with her. And sometimes it's like super slow and we stop a million times because she has to stop and like pick up a rock or get her hair out of her eyes or whatever. Um, but it's just been this really special time of like rest and then connecting with, with my daughter, but also I think connecting with God and almost just a part of that like morning, just kind of like prayer routine for me. Um, and it's just been really special and restorative, even if it's just for like 10 minutes. So that's my piece for today. That's great. That's great. If you could go on a run anywhere, where would you go? I would go, oh gosh, that's hard. Um, so you know what? And actually I know where I would go. So I would run on the Katy Trail, which is in Missouri. It actually goes all the way through the state. I went to school like in the middle of Missouri in Columbia. And when I was in college and then afterwards training for marathons and stuff, I would have told you I'm so sick of this trail because I was running like 20 miles on it. But now I haven't run on it in probably a good 10 years. And it's beautiful. It's tree-lined, and oh, it's gorgeous. That's where I would go. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. If you were to ask where I would go running, yes, where <laughs> would you go running, Jim? Tell us, please. Nowhere. I would <laughs> just sit down and re- relax and rest. When I was coming up, I was played football. I played basketball, and running was a form of punishment. I've got to figure out how to get over that because everyone I know who runs, uh, it sounds like they're addicted to like healthy crack. Like it's (laughs) like there's a, the endorphins and everything like that, um, creates this very healthy habit that draws you in. Um, it does seem like a divisive thing. I mean, I, I ran a lot. Um, I was on the cross country team in high school and, and track and did a lot of that, but I didn't necessarily come out of that experience with running being this, um, positive addiction, but it was still, but it, it formed this habit of something that I go to when I need some exercise. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, when you talk to people about it, people will either say what Kimberly said, it seems like, or what Jim said, like, well, I would only right. run if somebody was chasing me. Well, I'd go running for, <laughs> you know, a sense of relaxation and, and wholeness. You know, it's, it's so interesting how that does that. I wouldn't yeah. even run if someone was chasing me. Fight or flight, no, just, it's all fight for me. It's like if it was a bear, I'd just be like, eh, it's not worth it. Yeah, see, wait, that's I, not fight or flight. You're not even fighting. You're just I, like, I'd, I'd fight I'm a bear. I'd fight out. a bear. Lauren, I would fight a bear. I wouldn't win, but, but I would die. take my chances fighting rather than <laughs> running. Yeah, yeah, I would always run any day. I'm not a fighter. <laughs> that's that's uh, hilarious. That's, I'd be like, come on, can't we talk about this? We, we can talk about I'm like this. A, I'm like a, no, I'm like a diplomat. I'm just saying like if the bear, I'd be like, come on, let me, can we buy a cup of coffee? I'm sure we can work this out. That's right. That's right. I would take my chances on diplomacy with a bear over running. Um, you know, honestly, to, to highlight the obsession, they have whole magazines that are devoted to running. What could possibly oh, yeah. be in those magazines? Oh, like, all kinds of stuff. So oh, like what you tell asked, me about like, it. great places to run, like good trails, information about injuries because there's lots of injuries especially when you're talking about long distance running shoes like the best shoes for like if you pronate like if your feet roll in or your feet roll out um you know all the like gadgets like a garmin watch to tell you how far you've run and yeah it's awesome i mean 
it's a whole it's a whole other world for sure. 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 Sounds like but a great it, source to not run out of things to talk I'll, about in the faith work rest show and tell. Yeah. Someday we'll talk about it more. I think God used running in a lot of ways to like save my life. Yeah. So it's really important to me well i I think i might pick up one of these magazines before our next episode or in a future episode and we'll have a conversation because i can only imagine opening up that magazine and it just saying well go go for it start running i have a really good one a friend of mine um is an amazing marathon runner like one of the best like in the country and she had cancer and there's a really great article and one about her i'll get it for you oh that'd be great that'd be great yeah <clears throat> well, um, I'll make mine brief. My faith, work, and rest show and tell item is actually a book called Spiritual Discipline Handbook by Adele Calhoun. And it is a incredible book because it has about 80 or 90 spiritual disciplines that different movements or different parts of the church or denominations have done to connect with God throughout history. So it has Lectio Divina type uh, prayerful reading of scripture, fixed hour prayer, fasting, and it it's not very uh, verbose. There's about two pages per spiritual discipline, and it gives an overview of how to practice it and some discussion and reflection questions, a little bit of the history, and then that's it. And I I think it's something that's really good for people who usually connect with God in one sort of stagnant way, like Bible study, like every morning you parse out a passage to engage with God in some new uh, fresh ways that are fresh to you, but but are things that the church has been doing for a long time. So uh, the Spiritual Discipline Handbook, I would highly encourage people to get a hold of that. It's by Adele Calhoun. And so, yeah, so we've got Running, we've got Spiritual Discipline Handbook, and we've got the Citizens and Saints album. I think that's uh, sufficient to uh, give to the world before they hear what Jordan and Bethany Banesh have to say, um, in setting up this interview, one thing I really want to encourage is that you, you listen all the way to the end, uh, because they have a unique story in that they both work in accounting, but they also have taken some of their vocational power and their experience and they've applied it to helping uh, those who are coming out of the prison system to find work. Uh, without further ado, here's Jordan and Bethany as we interview them about faith, work, and rest. All right, well, we are here today to interview, in my opinion, uh, the power couple of theologically reflective accounting. So Woo-hoo. we have Jordan and Bethany Banesh. Um, who are are both accountants. They both do good work. We're going to ask them about their work and how they imagine their work in light of the biblical story and how their work has led them into some pretty substantial opportunities to serve those who are uh, incarcerated and to walk with them and uh, the, the connection between their employment and their vocation outside of their employment. So let's start off. And let's just have you, um, if you could, give us the, the, the brief. Give us your name. Uh, tell us where you grew up. And tell us how you guys met each other. You didn't know this was a dating show, did you? <laughs> no, we didn't. Uh, my name is Jordan. And my name is Bethany. Um, and so I grew up in a relatively small town in Minnesota. 
And I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And we actually met um, in grad school at ASU. Um, I was in um, the Master's of Accountancy program, and Bethany was in the Master's of Taxation program at ASU. The Master's Uh, of Taxation. Exactly. (laughs) A, A Master of Taxation sounds like that's where you go to get trained to be a relatively cruel person. Well, what was that like? Well, the common misconception people have, especially at this church, is that I can do everyone's taxes. Ah. And well, you are the master of taxation. I know, but uh, not of an individual person's taxes. And but you, you, you're on the taking end. Sure. <laughs> no. I'm on the help the corporations figure out the tax law so they can have as much money as possible. Okay, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So... Um, you guys met in grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like? Well, I guess we, we actually met a few years prior to that briefly through mutual friends. So we kind of knew who each other were. Yeah. Um, and we saw each other around school and would walk so past each other in I'll hallways and say truth. hi. So <laughs> Jordan and I sat next to each other at graduation and undergrad. And there was a time during the ceremony where people asked – or not people, the uh, – Whoever was in charge of commencement asked the people to stand up who had a 4.0. Mm-hmm. Jordan stood up next to me, and I was shocked because I knew he was a student athlete, so I was impressed by that. So then in grad school, we had to study for the CPA exam, which is the biggest exam of an accountant's career. I knew Jordan stood up for that 4.0, so I needed someone to help me pass. So <laughs> Jordan and I started hanging out more to prepare for that exam. That's great. That's mm-hmm. great. A lot of a lot of studying um, together, just trying to figure out the course material, and um, from that standpoint, I mean, we got to start hanging out more and getting to know each other, and started dating, and obviously now we're we're married, so it worked out, I think, for both of us. Brilliant. So, okay, you got to tell me, what is it like to have two accountants married to two masters? Uh, <laughs> married to each other like who does the finances how how ordered is your world or do you break the stereotypes what what's that like there's a lot of spreadsheets a lot of spreadsheets nice Um, yeah we had a amazing wedding spreadsheet that we've since shared with a lot of people with budgeting and you know modeling all of the expenses for a wedding so different things that we needed for um, bridesmaids and groomsmen and different things that we needed for the day of itself. We would, you know, kind of go through and figure all of that stuff out and figure out what it's going to cost, what we had. And, um, you could definitely tell looking at it that it was prepared by an accountant because it was prepared with a budget in mind. Nice. Um, and then, I mean, on a, on a regular basis, we, we go through our own finances and we look at what money's coming in, what money's going out, where's it, where's it going? Um, how we're paying for it, and just kind of taking everything line by line like you would kind of expect us to do, I guess, given our profession and um, the background that we come from. So it fits, it fits the stereotype, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And we're usually on the same page, so kind of makes makes it easier. That's great. That, that problem-solving mindset, When what's your first memory of identifying that you think that way and Maybe in ways that other people don't. I think it would probably go back to being on a playground in elementary school, seeing people who are older than me climbing monkey bars and you know trying different tricks on um, playground equipment and going down slides and 
Um, you know, climbing on the monkey bars when I wasn't as big, I'd have to figure out how I'm going to get up the ladder and get to the bars and just seeing how other people did it and trying to figure out, okay, I'm a little bit smaller. I probably don't have quite as much strength, um, but I'm going to figure out how to, how to get there and, and make it happen so I can go across the monkey bars. My, my brother was five years older than me. My sister's a couple years older, so they were always a little bit ahead of me in all of that. And I wanted to try to keep up. And I think problem solving was kind of a natural solution for a lot of that. Mm, that's interesting. It's interesting that the good works that God created you to do, the unique way that he created you, showed up on the monkey bars. That's great. That's great. So, Bethany, when in your timeline did you start to see that accounting might be something that you would move into? So, one interesting thing about accounting, not that there's that many, but uh, is that it's oftentimes genetic. I've found at least half of people in our field have either an uncle or a parent that's also an accountant. And for me, that's my dad. And we have different personalities, but our brains are wired the same. So I think our biggest similarity is that we're, we always are looking for the holes in things. We're always skeptical and mm. kind of thinking about things that maybe don't work even though it looks like it's working. Um, so I think for me, it's kind of always been there. Uh, I did not want, I resisted going uh, behind my dad and following his footsteps, but it was kind of just a natural career fit for me. That's great. So you mentioned something about a contract when you were in college. Yes. Tell me about that. <laughs> So my dad, being the CPA that he is, basically budgeted every life event, you know, all of our, uh, like even coming down to the amount of time between childbirth that was planned according to college tuition forecasted, you know. Wait, so, between your siblings? Yes. Wow. So my oldest two are two years apart and then I'm four years apart so that they wouldn't have to pay for three college tuitions and support us through college. My dad has always been that way, and sending his last child off to college was no different. So I had a certain budget of kind of just guidance for how I was to spend money. And then there is certain um, certain rules in order to continue going. I got threatened to go to community college in Ohio if I didn't follow through with some other rules. Um, but yeah, so it's very traditional CPA father. That's good. I, I have no reference for that. So <laughs> if you say that's the traditional, then that, that makes sense to me. So tell me about what you guys do now. Like, Where do you work? What's your role? Why don't we start with you, Bethany? So I work at Alvarez and Marsal. They're mainly a bankruptcy consulting firm. So if you are familiar with the Lehman Brothers and that whole collapse, they're the firm that helped them get through that, and mm -hmm. now they're surviving and thriving in today's economy. They have mainly a restructuring group, and then they have my group, which is the disputes and investigations group. So anytime there's a litigation or an allegation against a company, we help the attorneys piece together the picture um, and put some numbers to the allegation. So are you, are you looking into potential wrongdoing and crimes? Either. Yeah, either it's speculative and there might be, or some attorneys want to be prepared for the worst, so they ask us to dig into things, or there is definite wrongdoing 
and we have to come up with the damages. Yeah, so you're like a numbers detective. Yes. There you go. <laughs> numbers and emails. It's a lot of emails. That numbers I and emails. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, and then, okay, how about you, Jordan? Well, mine is a lot less exciting than that. Um, so it's going to be hard to, to live up to. Um, I am um, I'm employed by PwC, which is one of the, um, the referred to as the big four accounting firms. Uh, mm-hmm. They're a large public accounting firm, and I work in the assurance practice, which is basically a fancy way of saying that I'm an auditor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm engaged to perform audit work for um, clients, typically public companies who are publicly traded and are required to be audited mm-hmm. every year to have their financial statements reviewed and audited to make sure that the information that goes out to the investing public is accurate, that it's fair, that it's appropriately presented, and that it's not misleading um, to the investing public and the shareholders. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also do some services for private companies who are either required to be audited due to other regulations or they just want to be audited to have that additional level of comfort over their finances and their earnings. So your clients will hire your company to audit them? Correct. So it's like the willingly going to the dentist. It's like you know you need to do it. You need to get things checked out. Exactly. But it's... If you find something, it's not pleasant. Right. Okay. Okay. Basically, that's a very good way to put it. You're, you're, so, so you are, Bethany, are the, the detective of numbers and you are the dentist of numbers, Jordan. So yes. that's, that, that's what we have going on here. Yep. The question I have for you, uh, the thing that we always talk about is the necessity of reimagining our work in light of the biblical story. And a lot of times people struggle with that. And I think the stereotype that you've even alluded to here of accounting is that this is just kind of something that has to be done. It doesn't necessarily play a significant role in the biblical story. But I think you're going to prove me wrong. So tell me about this. When you work, you are working as an image bearer of God, an imitator of God. What aspects of his character are you trying to reflect through your work? Jordan, why don't you go first? Okay. So I think there's, um, I think there's a couple just based on um, the nature of the work that I do. So mm-hmm. as you said, my company is um, brought in by other companies to audit their financial statements. Yeah. Um, and so there's a level of client service there. Mm-hmm. And what that looks like for me on a day-to-day basis is um, stewarding the the resources, the knowledge, the skills that I've been given and that I've acquired Mm. um, to do the work that I am supposed to do. Mm. Um, And so sometimes that looks like discussing a transaction with the client, making sure that we understand what is truly going on within that transaction and bringing the knowledge that I've gained to make sure that we understand what's going on and that we know um, how it ought to be accounted for and how how it should be treated. Um, I think the the other aspect to that, and I think the one that um, I've thought about a lot more just in terms of my day-to-day work is we see throughout the biblical narrative that God is a protector. Mm. Um, and I mean, you only have to go back less than a couple of decades to see how my profession specifically was really transformed and reformed. Mm. Um, back what, what do you to, mean by that? Back to um, 
the Enron scandal. Mm-hmm. And so when it was found out that Enron had been defrauding shareholders, that they were misrepresenting their revenues, their earnings, the activities that they were performing, um, the nature of their relationship with their auditor, Enron went bankrupt. Um, some 80, 75 or $80 billion of shareholder value was lost. Pensions were um, went away for employees and there was just a lot of bad that came from that. On the on the same note, Enron's auditor also went under because mm. it was found that they were um, engaged in obstruction of justice. They were shredding evidence and deleting emails and things that were also not good. And so from that, there was a lot of reform and regulations placed around auditing mm-hmm. and around the nature of relationships between companies and their auditors. And so really where um, I think I get to step in and engage in that is being kind of that intermediary and that protector of the investing public to make sure that the information that goes out to them and that they make decisions based upon is actually true and that it's accurate. So so let's play a little hypothetical here. I want you to imagine that tomorrow morning, all of the auditors, uh, people playing the similar role as you, become corrupt. What does that do to society? I think it brings a lot of distrust. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing, and, and you can go well well before um, the Enron scandal to see various other instances of that occurring. I mean, really what was happening was there were executives at companies and then also auditors at audit firms who were engaged in really bad activity mm-hmm. and really corrupt activity. And what that did was bring about a lot of distrust of companies and accounting firms and auditors in specific, where there was just a lot of fear in investing in companies and making decisions about where money is being put and where it's being placed by people like you and me who have um, maybe a retirement account or an investment account um, or just interested in what's going on in the business world in general. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. In in many ways, your work is pushing back against the effects of the fall. It's being God's instrument of protection, reflecting this protective God that we have. I think that's very profound. How does knowing that affect the way you work day in, day out? I think for me, and really for for anyone who is an auditor or who's taken an accounting or audit class in um, in school, mm. it's always pressed into you that you need to maintain uh, what's called professional skepticism. Mm. And so every statement that is read, every discussion that is had with a client, every piece of financial information that you see, you have to remain skeptical of. Mm. Um, so it can't just be accepted as fact without digging a little bit deeper and validating that what was discussed or that what occurred or that what you're being told happened actually happened. Mm. Um, and so there's just in kind of every single conversation in every activity that, that I do, I have to constantly think about that and think about, yes, I trust and I, I really like this person, but I still have to validate what they said. It's almost like you have to have a biblical view of humanity, that people are created in God's image, yet sinners and capable of very evil things. Exactly. Yeah. So, Bethany, what would you say? My career has kind of taken a turn recently 
being in bankruptcy now. I used to not be in bankruptcy and just work on investigations. Mm-hmm. But I think bankruptcy is really interesting when you think of theology because once you are filing for bankruptcy, nine times out of ten, you get subpoenaed, mm. which means everything you've done is basically about to get opened and people are going to start sifting through them. Yeah. Um, and that just kind of reminds me of the um, just first and second beatitudes of recognizing that you're spiritually poor or, or bankrupt and then also just mourning your brokenness and seeing, like trusting us to see where you were wrong and where you were inefficient and how can we help you restructure your debt or pay your debt fairly in order to emerge from bankruptcy and yeah. be redeemed. Yeah. Um, so that's one part. I think just basically through investigations we do, we see a lot of brokenness and we're stepping into the brokenness to make right what people did that was wrong. And I had the most scandalous case I've ever worked on was the very first one I worked on as an intern. So at that point I was contributing very little, but it made me really appreciate my career, was when a CFO was uh, claiming his mistress as his tax accountant Mm. and flying her with him to his business trips in Barcelona and other places throughout the world. And I got to see uh, his personal emails and her personal emails. And that at the time was really heartbreaking for me just to see his wife finding out about his affair Mm. and, you know, all of it. And then him getting his company involved in it and just seeing how much of a mess he made his life. Not that I'm Jesus, but <laughs> reflecting Jesus in the way that I can really see all of the brokenness from my view. Because I'm mm. at the point where these companies are in trouble, so they need to hand over everything. Yeah. So I have the perspective of really seeing the full picture of brokenness and then working to amend the wrongs. Yeah. You have a vantage point where you see things that only you and God see in, mm-hmm. in some ways, and mm-hmm. the depths of sin. How does that affect you? Well, and we'll get into this at some point. That specific story made me think differently about people in that position to do something fraudulent. Mm-hmm. It, it showed me there's a lot of elements that go into making these poor decisions, and it's not necessarily that they're an evil, greedy person, but maybe life just started going the wrong direction and they may be trying to course correct and in that committing fraud along the way. So made me more empathetic, I think. So getting a closer look to people's sin Mm -hmm. and the broken things they were doing actually made you more empathetic and not more jaded? Uh, Yes, towards individual people. I think it's made me more jaded towards companies and like trusting in the free market society because I do see the good in regulations and the good in auditors and all of the things that we do. But it's made me see there's a lot of pieces to the story and, you know, plenty of people that don't even realize what they're doing is wrong because they don't understand the full scope of what they've been told to do. So I think, yeah, I definitely see the human side of fraud. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but in scripture where we see the term principalities and powers, I think a lot of times when people read that, they think of like little little devils, like little sun devils with pitchforks mm-hmm. doing bad things. Or they think of human 
governments or inst- institutions. But I think there's like this growing consensus. It's not a consensus, but it's a growing uh, emphasis, I should say, amongst theologians that these principalities and powers are actually cultural entities, cultural institutions that are influenced demonically and influenced through ideologies, but they become such powerful institutions that they almost have a life of their own. Mm. And um, having said that, how do you think that we should think about institutions and big, powerful institutions as believers, knowing what you know and seeing what you've seen? I think if you work for an institution, always have some level of skepticism. Hmm. Uh, most recently, I've been working on a project that was a company in bankruptcy. And in bankruptcy, there are certain laws where you, once you're headed in that direction towards filing for bankruptcy, you have to be very careful about who you're paying. Hmm. And because you obviously owe a lot of people money, so you don't want to be cherry picking who gets the last few dollars. And through all of that mess in a very small timeline, People are trying to make sure certain invoices comply with bank regulations, and they're fudging invoices. Mm. So they're saying that, you know, we just got this invoice, and we're paying it in the ordinary course of business. Mm. When, no, this is really old, and maybe you wouldn't have normally paid this. So anyways, I just see a lot of emails about this, and there's people that are like, oh, I'm just going to put this through the software, and I'll edit it so it's paid to the right entity and it's a bunch of people that are saying like okay what other ones are top priority and like finally maybe the ninth person involved is like this kind of seems immoral Mm. (laughs) but it took to like the ninth person so i remember thinking like doesn't anyone wonder maybe i should not be doing this yeah but sometimes i think it can take a while for people to really question that because they think, well, my boss is a good person and I'm just doing my job. So um, I think just questioning what people tell you to do and just really being empowered that what you do is important and significant and you may have the ability to stop some of that evil power. Yeah. What would you say to that? I mean, I think the where I would um, respond to that, I think, is that Corporations are run by people, mm-hmm. um, and people are broken. People are flawed. People, people do some really great, awesome, creative things and some really good things. Um, and people also make mistakes, and people um, do some things that are not um, what they ought to do. Mm. And so, I think similar to to how Bethany responded is just maintaining that air of skepticism to a degree, and um, really keeping that that idea in your in your mind that. Um, just because I'm being asked to do something or just because I'm being told to do something doesn't mean that it's what I should do. Mm. And so I, I think that's what we both kind of see a little bit in, in our jobs just based on the nature of what we do. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because you bring up the reality that they are filled with people. Every movement, every community, churches included. And there is something about the potency of these communities, of these institutions that are greater than the sum of their parts, that they take on this potent life um, to where individuals who would never think to do something mm-hmm. on their own, once they're immersed 
in the culture of whatever institution it may be, um, if that is the collective mind of the institution, you can be kind of lulled into that. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that a lot of the people that you guys are looking into aren't people who sat down one day and said, today I'm going to do something wrong. Right. Yeah. And you can tell just by the flippant emails, like they're not, they have no doubt about what they're doing. They're just doing it because they were told to do it. So if the culture isn't honest, then a lot of people are just susceptible to assuming that they're just doing what's in the scope of their job. Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of people find themselves in companies, communities, institutions where they feel that, they feel like there's something that might be off. Mm -hmm. But to buck against it would be to really, I don't know, Stir the pot, you know, kick a hornet's nest. What's the phrase? I don't know. Yeah. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Stir the pot. I think that's correct. Yeah. Stir the hornet's nest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What advice would you have for those people who are wrestling with some ethical thing in the work that they are doing? I think um, depending on what exactly the nature of that company, corporation, entity is, um, you know, what what I see a lot with, with my work working with large public companies, they have ethics hotlines. Mm. Um, so you can call in anonymously and bring up what is going on to an independent body of people who whose job it is to review whatever information or allegation that you've brought up or um, any information that you've brought to light, and they review and investigate that mm. and determine what is the situation? What are the facts and circumstances of what's going on? Um, and so that option in a lot of companies is always there. It's advertised on companies' websites. It's advertised at my clients. It's advertised around the company's headquarters. That is is made um, well known to employees that that outlet is there if that's what needs to happen. And then I think there's just that level of maintaining the appropriate level of ethicism Mm -hmm. in in what you do and not being afraid to bring that information to light in whatever way that needs to happen yeah i think i don't think it necessarily has to be seen as turning on your employer if you start from the get-go of having a good relationship with your boss and really questioning him along the way where that isn't such a surprised to him if maybe you were to question an unethical decision but just being honest and transparent with your boss throughout your career but also working really hard and proving that you'll work hard to do what is right that can maybe give you some respect between you and your boss to well now I'm questioning it and I would normally just work really hard if this is the right thing to do so it's not out of laziness because that's what I see a lot is like it's deadlines to get get this done quickly so we can sweep it under the rug and move on with it. Like, So people that are raising the red flag might be seen as someone who's just working against the progress. But if you have a track record of working diligently and only pausing when it's important, I think that can help you in those conversations. That's good. That's good. It's still risky, though. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it definitely is. And there's studies that show that the Whistleblower Protection Act doesn't usually protect against retaliation. So I do think that's still just an area of brokenness in our world. Yeah, it's interesting because the early church was known 
for taking bold vocational stances and when they would and wouldn't engage in certain things. So, for instance, the early church, first century church, would not participate in the theater uh, because oftentimes uh, sexual and like violent acts were happening, you know, real life on stage. And so there was there was the the boldness of not stepping into that and participating in that. And that wasn't that big of a deal. But then also there was a challenge when it came to the legal system to participate in Roman legal proceedings. You oftentimes had to make a uh, some sort of sacrifice or participate in the, the Roman cultic worship. And even if it was just a gesture, you had to pledge your allegiance to to Caesar, that sort of thing. You had to mm. to engage. I, I forget what the exact acts were, but their unwillingness to do that was actually where the persecution came from. In many ways, people did not have that big of a problem with Christians in certain eras. It's not like they were going around and they're like, oh, that's a Christian. Go get them. It was like, yeah, yeah, do whatever. Worship your Jesus thing. But when it came to the non-participation in the the legal cultic practices that's what got christians persecuted in some various scenarios Hmm. one of the things i just reflect on is what would it look like for us to in our various vocations and occupations take bold stances and i think part of what it would look like is we would need to be a church that's willing to care for one another when people get fired when people get Mm -hmm when they get swallowed up because they took that bold stance. But as it stands right now, I don't know if we are as communal and hospitable with one another. We're committed enough to one another to where if someone does take that bold move, they've got a community that'll come around them. Right. Yeah. As I kind of alluded to earlier, um, I think in, in the business world, what we have seen is from the ashes of the Enron scandal and the collapse of Arthur Anderson, their audit firm, you saw a lot of reform and Mm -hmm. regulations related to corporate business practices, related to the requirements that auditors have to maintain independence and could only provide certain services to the companies that they audit. And then really from that, what we we saw is the requirement that companies develop what's called an internal controls environment. Mm -hmm. And so what that looks like for me on a on a regular basis in my job is Understanding the work that individuals at companies do, the Mm. processes that they perform um, on a daily basis, on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual basis. And I get to understand that and I get to look at what that process entails, the different controls that exist within that process that are intended to, to catch any of those potential wrongdoings or just errors that may happen. Um, in order to prevent something like what we've what we've seen um, yeah. happen previously. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So I appreciate the thoughtfulness that both of you have when it comes to these institutions, these authorities, these uh, concentrations of power. And I think one way to sort of conclude this part of the interview would just be by reminding people of Colossians 1.16 that says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
And the reality is, is that all these institutions, these culturally powerful things, they were created through and for Christ. And it is a part of his redemptive plan to reconcile them and reorient them to himself. But in the meantime, we need to pray for faithfulness about what it looks like to thrive and bear witness within those organizations, institutions, and concentrations of power in society. And Jordan and Bethany, I think you guys are doing a great job and exemplifying what it looks like to follow Christ in that situation. Well, that's it for part one of this interview with Jordan and Bethany Banesh. We're going to pick up next week. We're going to take on a different angle. We are going to hear them talk about their role in prison ministry and how they are stewarding the gifts that God has given them through accounting to help women who are in prison to re-enter into society and to thrive. We go deeper into some broader systemic issues and how they are using their gifts to love their neighbor in some very particular situations. So we look forward to next week as we continue the interview with Jordan and Bethany Banesh. Uh, just a reminder, today's music is by Artificial Christian. You can find out more about uh, Faith Work Rest at faithworkrest.com. Um, also more about the Surge Network there. And if you're interested in getting involved on the prayer team, sharing with us stories about your faithful vocation or reimagine occupation, or signing up for some vocational coaching, you can do that there too, faithworkrest.com. Until next time, have a great week. I imagine that Aleppo was vacation cool, and all them prison buildings were vocation schools. Imagine that we sip the finest water that exists And it ain't from Poland Spring, not it's more like Poland Flint Imagine politicians with the different views All coming together every night, the news Reports on the beauty of creation, not the mess Get called some IRS just to need to hire bless The pain from autism all replaced by more wisdom The lame hit the dance floor, moving on rhythm And no stores closed, no we're cutting more ribbons And all them strip clubs become museums just for women